Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. My guest today is Steve Kavanagh and we'll be talking about his new novel, The Devil's Advocate, which is the latest Eddie Flynn mystery. Possibly the best in a really gripping series. A blend of serious issues, courtroom drama and psychological thriller. And he adds a touch of humour just to make the pot sweeter. Steve has won several awards, the 2019 Thigston's Old Peculiar Novel of the Year for 13, the CWA Gold Dagger for The Liar, and the Prix Polar in France for the Best International Novel. I'm sure that The Devil's Advocate is going to add to that list. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did, so let's get to it. Hello, Steve. Welcome to Crime Dime FM. Really lovely to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. No, absolutely. My pleasure. We're going to be talking about The Devil's Advocate, which will be a smash, and a lot of people have already described it as your best book ever. And I think well, uh, that's rather very nice of them to do that. Well, let's let's hope so. It is, but it's also genuine. And to be fair, you set the bar very high too. With all this commercial and critical success, uh, and the awards as well. I mean. What's it been like? Because you've also made the decision to become a full-time writer now too, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, that kind of that decision was sort of made by my wife uh, because I was still, you know, being a lawyer full-time mm. and writing at night. And I'd done that for so, so long. It was just, it was really starting to affect my health. Mm. And we had a wee bit of money behind us and we thought, let's just take the chance here and do this. And so far, touch wood, it's worked out. No, oh, it definitely has. Yeah. How's it been during COVID then? I mean, being a full-time writer, well, there's no good thing about COVID, but to some extent you're forced to concentrate, aren't you? Well, I find it very difficult to concentrate during right. the whole thing because I have to say, I know um, some people I know were able to just, you know, ha- thrash out a couple of books during lockdown, mm. but I find the whole thing very distracting. I was, I find it very difficult to work. Um, like we're in a new house now and I haven't, because of COVID, I haven't really found my routine yet. So I'm still working bits and pieces in the morning and the afternoon and bits at nighttime as well. So I don't have a routine nailed down yet, but I I will because of a a deadline coming soon. I'm sure (laughs) that, that always forces the hand. Yeah. Something to focus on. Let's start with a bit of background then and chat about, um, have you always been a crime reader and, and who are your influences? Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I read very widely. I still do, you know, mm. most of the stuff I read is crime, but I, I still read uh, other things too. But when I was younger, I started off reading comic books, um, you know, Marvel comics, mm. DC comics, Beano and the Dandy. I loved and loved those annuals. And my mum and I would go to a wee secondhand bookshop, the War on Want bookshop, and we would get yeah. books there or go to the library. And I read Spike Milligan's War Memoirs and Sue Townsend, Adrian Mole, right. all of that. Loved all that. And Roald Dahl, everything. And then when I was about maybe 11 or so, uh, my mum gave me Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris to read. <laughs> and uh, I loved it. I thought it was, this was amazing. And then there was a movie was out and we yeah, watched yeah. that as well. So I loved it. And that was me hooked. And then I went through... You know the, the 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 classic, you know, crime stuff. Chandler, Ross McDonald, um, and and the more modern things. John Grisham was starting to come out. Then a few years after that, John Grisham started, and I read all of those. And so I've been a big crime reader 
all my life then following that. But I still, you know, we read other things, read nonfiction and, you know, some biographies and uh, other fiction. But crime is my is my big love. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm wondering about with the legal thrillers, um, I'm not a big fan of these rabbit out of the hat kind of legal thrillers. You know, the ones where all of a sudden there's just this one moment in court and absolutely everything turns on it. And you think there's no way that's going to happen. You know, there's just no reason why it would. I mean, how do you feel about it? Well, I don't know. I mean, people, sometimes people call that the Perry Mason moment. Yeah. Um, uh, but there was, you know, there was more than that. If you re- ever read mm. any of the Perry Mason books, there was a bit more than that to it. Mm. You know, um, those books are incredible, by the way. Uh, and they were huge sellers. You know, in terms, if you look at in the list of all time big sellers. Yeah, yeah, fiction, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's right up there, you mm. know, with, with those books. So, no, I, I, I understand there's people who have the smoking gun thing. They'll find the one piece of evidence that will mm. cut through everything. And, you know, very rarely that will happen. Um, uh, and certainly in my experience, normally it's an accumulation of a thousand cuts. And that's yeah. more interesting. You know, that keeps the drama going, you know. So it depends. I, I would never rule anything out. Uh, if you can pull a rabbit out of a hat, if you could do that in the best way that a rabbit has ever been pulled out of a hat, <laughs> I will stand and applaud. So Fair then, enough. All, bet, you know, there's no, all bets are off, whatever you want to do. Yeah, true, yeah. I suppose um, I'm wondering a little bit about how you feel about because Northern Ireland's an incredibly um, fecund place for literature at the moment. I mean, I've always loved the, the Northern Irish writers. McKinty, we spoke about a minute, a minute ago, um, Brian McGilloway, you know, there's a whole Brennan, whole host of them, Anthony J. Quinn. Um, the difference in the senses, I mean, the, these writers, they're kind of, um, their inspiration, and that, that's a bad word in this sense, is through the troubles. <laughs> but then you don't write about the troubles. You write about New York and you write about a lawyer in a different part of the world. But I'm wondering, is your uh, motivation still the same thing effectively, though? You know, is, there, is it still your background that, that, um, that gives you this impetus to write? Perhaps, you know, I think there's lots of things that, that influence you. Um, mm. Certainly growing up, I had a strong sense of what was, you know, of, of injustice mm. when, when you saw it, you know, and corruption as well, which ran right through Northern Ireland and maybe does to this day, who knows? But you, you can't grow up here and avoid that. You know, mm. that's just something that, that that is right there. And, you know, there are th- the things that have, reappeared in my books corruption and police corruption and all of that has gone right through all of my work and you know i think there is a strong sense of of justice Mm. uh in the novels even though it's not it's not legal but in in many ways but it's still justice so but you know those are universal things someone growing up you know under ceausescu's regime you know bucharest would probably have the same uh, yeah. you know, types of, of influences and, and if they were writing, it might be the same thing. So a lot of these themes are universal, you know? Yeah. So I find a lot of um, the fact that it's a borderland, you know, it makes it very similar to America and Mexico. And so, you know, you get these things cropping up uh, again and again. But one thing I do note about Northern Ireland, and it's something that doesn't get talked about much probably outside, is the humour. Because if you read the yeah. authors I was talking about and you read your books, that humour, I assume, is what comes from the Northern Ireland life as well. Yeah, I always have a bit of humour in my books. I think it helps, and it's you know, that's just me. 
You know, yeah. I'm always the first to crack a joke. And I think that a lot of Irish people are the same, you know. Um, most of us don't take ourselves too seriously. And, you know, if, if we're able to, I think it was Christopher Hitchens said, if you can write, yeah, if you can talk, you can write. Right. There's a lot, you know, if you ever see five Irish crime writers in a bar together, none of us can get a word <laughs> in edgeways. We can all talk. So I think it comes from that, you know. Yeah. Because it's just not there in the films and that, you know, people tend to think Ireland is such a serious place. And of course, it's not necessarily. I'm wondering, does that also help with the dialogue? You know, because the dialogue in your novels, the one thing about the American dialogue in New York and that, you know, is this really sharp kind of witty thing. And Eddie is a real embodiment of that. He can be incredibly sharp. And what is that something that comes from your background? Maybe I've always found dialogue easy to write. Um, Yeah. That may well have been because, you know, I devoured Elmore Leonard uh, at a young and influential age. That may have helped, I'm sure. But, um, no, I, I, that's always seemed to flow for me. I've, I've never really struggled too much with dialogue. Um, and, again, that could be part of my upbringing uh, because people talk fast and they talk a lot, mm. you know, where, where I come from. And maybe that's something that's inbuilt as well. But I, I'm thankful for that. Dialogue is has never been a big struggle for me. No, right. Okay. You couldn't have done it without the legal career, obviously, because of the nature of the books. But I'm just wondering, do you kind of need these other things in your life anyway, you know, the hinterland and another career, uh, to be a better writer? Does, does it influence it? Does it help that way? I think knowing things helps writers. Right. Now, that could be, you know, if you work in a mortuary, and you know what really goes on in a mortuary or a funeral home, mm. or if you've worked behind a bar for many years and you know a lot of the, you know, moves, fast moves that are posed by bartenders and bar owners and things like this. Um, or if you, you know, it, it applies to whatever job you have. If you have real insight into it, if you've been doing something for a long time and it's interesting and it's something different that people haven't really heard before. Mm. I don't think it matters what type of background you have, but I think you have to know stuff and you have to care, you know? Yeah. That's right. why I'm always amazed when their young writers come through in their twenties. As I think, God, I, I knew nothing when I was 21. Yeah, I feel the same I way. the hell did they write this? And you do see it occasionally. And uh, so I think knowing stuff and being passionate and believing in something all, all helps. And that, that can come, come from any profession. Yeah, right. I'm curious about how you think your writing's changed over the, the, the novels. It's seven novels now, I think, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously there's growing in confidence and there's growing technically, but do you actually feel you've got a, a clearer sense of a vision of what you're doing with your writing? I don't, I don't think, know if I have a clearer vision. I know the style and things have changed, mm. and I think I've developed as a writer. Um, the first two Eddie Flynn books are almost all first person. Um, there's no other points of view in those first two books. The, with the third book, The Liar, I'm introducing a little bit of, um, you know, letters and things like this. And, yes. But there's no other real point of view change in The Liar, apart from one opening. So I was experimenting with third person. And then by the time 13 comes along, there are two narrators. There's Eddie and Kane, the killer. 50 yes. 50, there's three narrators. So there's Eddie and there's Kate Brooks, the lawyer, and then there's a character simply known as she. And in The Devil's Advocate, there's multiple narrators. I don't know, maybe seven or eight. I don't know. 
again, it's an Eddie Flynn book, so people are going to spend most of their time with Eddie Flynn, and I think that's really important. But I think I have the confidence now to tell him a greater um, range uh, of, of points of view, a greater range of, of stories within yeah. the one book. And I think that helps a lot with my character. So I've grown in confidence in doing that. I've also learned a few tricks, you know, with twists and things and keep people on their toes. So I think I have I have developed and certainly changed. I don't know if it's necessarily better. I really hope it's better. But I, I, I feel a wee bit more confident in writing. But that's not to say that it's any easier. Um, no, I'm right. writing a book now and it's, you know, every new one is the hardest book that you're going to write, I think. Mm. No, but you, I can feel an energy kind of running through the writing, you know, and I, and that feels like you're getting stronger and stronger in some senses as a reader. You know, you, you get that passion coming through. Thank you. Um, I was just curious then, what, do you, what is it for you that, that um, you think is the um, most kind of, the thing that gets people about the books? Because we've got the courtroom drama and we've got the clever mysteries. But I think something you were hinting at there that I hope to pick up a little bit more on as well is the fact that these are psychological novels. You talked about giving a voice to more people. And, of course, the yeah. point about that is then they're unfiltered. So you get the, the rounded picture. You get to see the other side of the issue. I mean, would you say that's true, that they're more psychological mysteries, perhaps, in a sense, even than they are courtroom dramas? I think so. Um Certainly, you know, I did a standalone novel called Twisted, which was just purely a psychological yeah, right. um, thriller. And I think as the books have gone on, you know, there's maybe a wee bit less courtroom stuff, uh, mm. certainly in The Devil's Advocate. Um, there's obviously lots of game playing going on before the courtroom starts. But, yeah, I think I'm, I think that's just me becoming and learning how to be a better writer so that I'm able to do that. Um so I did never want to rely solely on there's a mystery. Mm. To me, there has to be something more. There has to be some interesting characters with interesting choices. You've already made interesting, you meet a lot of characters in Devil's Advocate. You have made bad choices mm-hmm. and they're at a crisis point and you wonder what they're going to do next. And some double down and some change their minds. So that I think is, is something that's helped me develop. I read, I've been reading a lot of Patricia Highsmith Right, yeah, yeah. And that really helps me. And Ross McDonald as well. He was maybe mm-hmm. one of the first big psychological um, writers when it came to crime. You know, it's Chandler funny, was I think he's one of those that everybody who's, a, you know, writers appreciate Ross McDonald. He's not awesome. as well known with readers. And it is a great pity because he's definitely as good as, uh, well, Chandler or, or uh, you know, um, Hammett. You know, he's, he's right up there as a writer. Oh, for, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I, I think he's much better than Hammond. Hammond mm. always left me cold. Mm. I appreciate the man's skill, immense skill. But for me, Ross McDonald was always, was just something, there was a lot of heart in those books. And I think yeah. that's a great skill to be able to put that yeah. on the page. Plus, the other thing comes out about what you were saying was that Eddie now has Kate in this novel because now he's mm. teamed up. Um, in fact, actually, I think before we start that, let's go back. Tell us a little bit about the premise of the book, because otherwise I'm setting up the answers in the wrong order here, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the events in this book take place shortly after 5050. But of right. course, with, with every one of these books, you don't need to have read the previous one. They all work as total standalone. Yeah, right. So Eddie's in his new firm and he gets asked to go to Alabama and represent a young man who's on trial for his life, literally. Mm. Um, he's, uh, it's a capital murder case. There's a young woman uh, who this man worked with who's been murdered. 
and the whole town believes this, this young man is guilty and his lawyer has gone missing. And the prosecutor is called Randall Korn, who uh, has the record for sending the most amount of people to death row. They call him the king of death row, and he is the devil's advocate. And Eddie goes down there to this little town, and he's not just fighting you know, a biased jury. There's a whole mm. town against him here. And it brings up themes of racism and white supremacy and lots of other things come into it. But it's a, it's a, it's a good it's a good it's a good background and also allowed me to explore lots of other things because there's another character called the pastor. Yes, right. Who is doing lots of things behind the scenes and he's quite a scary individual. So there's there's plenty to keep you entertained. Oh, there definitely is, and I think we'll. I want to unpick a bit of that actually as we go along here but um just to start then with the premise um which which is basically it's the thing that that kicks off with every one of yours you get this brilliant little phrase on the beginning of the book you know the the little blurbs and that you know that actually make it so damn interesting right from that moment but the thing about it is you get this hook and then you have to live up to it yeah and i'm assuming that basically what happens is like you get the hook that's your idea the basic start and here the idea is that the killer is actually the DA, you know. He's yes. Um, in fact, when you mentioned his name earlier, I almost wanted to hiss. You know, you get that uh, <laughs> feeling <laughs> hey. about him. <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering then, so how does it follow on from that? I mean, is it almost like you, you've set yourself this mission? Pretty much, because I don't outline anything before I start. I don't know what right. the end is. I don't know what the middle is. I have a, you know, a, a, a premise or a setup which I think is interesting and could sustain a book. Mm. And I go from there and I see where it takes me. And that and that's a terrible way to write a book, to be honest. <laughs> it's really bad. And because there are, you know, there are sometimes there are false starts and I have to go back and right. uh, it's not how it is in the manual. One, yeah, exactly. So but it but it makes it entertaining for me because I want to know what happens next. And mm. how this is all going to play out. So it keeps me involved and energized right. in the book. And I'm hoping that comes through in the writing. That's funny you say that then, because uh, I hadn't quite considered it like that. But I used the word energy myself earlier. And it's there. And maybe that is exactly what it comes from. You know, the fact that you're getting this process and enjoying it yourself along the way. Um, yeah. The thing about this case is that uh, the devil's advocate, this really takes Eddie out of his comfort zone. Because now you've moved into it's a capital case. It's in Alabama. I can't think of anywhere I'd like less to be, to be honest, I think. Um, <laughs> but you, you get the sense of the absurdities and the frustrations of the American legal system that come through in your other work as well. You know, it was there in 5050. It was there in the earlier books. Um, I'm just wondering, is Eddie a kind of way of humanizing the legal system? Because he's sort of, he's like Robin Hood in a sense. You know, he's for the poor guy. He's for the, the downtrodden. And yet the system is such a bloody steamroller. If you look at the idea of plea bargaining, uh, which it can catch up innocent people. You know, the whole idea that a DA is more powerful because of his conviction rate. And, of course, money talks. Yeah, I, I think in the earlier books, I focused more on telling a good story. And there were references to how unbalanced the, this justice system is. This is The Devil's Advocate, in many ways, is a book that I maybe wanted to write first because mm. it really focuses on this is how terrible this system is. Mm, right. And that's the big part of the book. Um, and uh, Eddie was kind of created in some ways to balance the system because it is so biased 
you know, in favor of the prosecution. Yeah, yeah. And uh, against, especially young um, per uh, defendants mm. uh, and, and minorities in America. You need, the only way to balance that is to put uh, a con artist in there who yeah. will use all of those uh, weapons against the system. And that will make it fair. But and also you creates the paradox that the most honest man in this whole judicial process is a con artist. Mm. Uh, so that that's an interesting dynamic for me, and there's lots to play on in that in this book and other books. But Eddie was created to write a lot of the injustices that you know I I saw, and he's my vehicle for that. There's no put it this way: it's no accident that Eddie Flynn punches a lot of policemen in this series. <laughs> Right, I'll bear that in mind. That's interesting then in the context of the next question, because I was going to go on to say a lot of people, I'm sure, ask you how much of you is Eddie. And it's interesting to hear you say about, you know, how it is in the courtroom and your styles. But I wasn't so much interested in that as a a more, in a a way, a kind of more fundamental question. How much of you wants to be Eddie? Um, Not not much, really, (laughs) because... You know, he's he's been through the ringer now, you know, in this series. Well, he has, yeah. And it's one of the things that's that's mentioned is that Eddie is one of the people who will stand up when there is injustice. And that has a price which he has paid. And it's you know, I've been through that in my professional career as well. Right. I was a civil rights lawyer mm. and I won cases against some of the biggest companies in the UK and Europe and beyond. Right. And uh, sometimes you go, you know, you go out and your tires are slashed in the car park. Mm. Or when I won a big key, a big judgment in a race discrimination case, the next day our, you know, our building had been vandalized. Right. Uh, so there's, there is a price to pay for all of this. I'm at the stage now where I'm out of that fight and I'm quite happy for Eddie to do my fighting, that kind of fighting for me, <laughs> right. where I have no consequences. And he gets to do all the the hard work and the heavy lifting. Yeah. One of the most interesting things about Eddie is this point you make, and it's it's a life dilemma, if you like, is the idea of whether something is morally right or legally right. And in a sense, you you riff on the idea that you can actually do a bad thing for a good reason. Yes. And that crops up in this novel with Eddie, doesn't it? It does. There's a lot, you know, he's always been that character who will do the wrong thing for the right reason. You know, as a lawyer, he breaks more, more, more laws than he upholds in many <laughs> ways. And you know, maybe that's an influence from, from, from uh, Jack Reacher, from Lee mm, Child's right, Jack yeah, Reacher. Yeah. Because I remember uh, Lee Child said, someone said to him once, Reacher is the world's worst detective because he commits more murders than he solves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's absolutely brilliant. And Lee loved hearing that, of course. And I think maybe that's Eddie as well. You know, he's a very strong moral core. Yeah. And he will only represent people he believes are innocent. Not either makes him the best lawyer in the world or the worst. Yeah. But he has this and he's stuck with it because he wants he wants to be able to sleep at night. He wants to, mm. to have a, a clear conscience. And that's something he's, he's trying to make up for, for, for something that happened in his past. Yes, right. In, yeah, in the early days. Yeah. In the early um, days. So he's on this journey. Yeah. 
I mean, and that's what puts readers with him, actually, because we're making the same. This is the thing. You're in the book then and you're making the same judgments, you know, and you're making your own decisions about whether. Well, I know that's not the law. I know it's wrong, but actually, I think it's right. Yeah. So you make your own judgments about that. So you mentioned there when you started out um, that Eddie was pretty much on his own and he's got his mentor, Harry, followed from that. Mm -hmm. But now he's also got Kate and he's got Block as well, you know, and they're a team. And I just wondered, you've obviously developed the idea of, of this team thing, you know, and it's a still, it is absolutely an Eddie Flynn book, but it's, it's become a very team thing, hasn't it? That's what I felt. And in fairness, in this case, I don't honestly think he could have solved the case or worked on the case that he has worked on in this book without actually having a team. It, would, it just would have been impossible for him to go down there on his own, if you like. Exactly. That was the thing, you know, as, as the, the stories I wanted to write became more complex I realized, look, Eddie can't do all this on his own. Right. Um, and Harry was of an age where, you know, he's not going to do it. So there was a private investigator character, Harper, who was in the series. But I wanted to bring in a, a total new team. And Block is a character who first appeared in Twisted uh, mm. as a sheriff. Yes, right. And I really liked her as a character. And I thought, well, bring her into the Eddie Flynn books. And for 50-50, I needed another lawyer character mm. to be representing because that, that that book is about two sisters who are on trial yeah, right. and they accuse each other of this murder. And they're but they're both saying they're innocent. So Eddie has to represent one sister. Kate was representing the other sister. So I needed that other that other dynamic. And she gave me an opportunity to talk a lot about things that young female lawyers go through. A lot of sex discrimination and sexual harassment in the workplace, yeah, which is right. rife, especially in the law. Mm. Um, and that gave me a chance to do all of that and explore all of that. So I thought, well, this is this, you know, that's at the I, I knew as soon as I created the character of Kit, these two have to come together at the end right. of this book. Um, and that has given me loads more opportunities. So I like having that as a team. It makes them a wee bit more realistic. It gives a little counterbalance to Eddie. Um, it's a it's a diverse group of characters, which is exciting yes. for me to write. Um, and you know, it's something that I'm going to you know hopefully add to maybe a wee bit in books down the line. I've an idea for a character to bring into the Eddie Flynn world. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about. Oh, great! No, that sounds very interesting. I really liked it as a feature of this novel. Um, well, you've got good guys, of course. You've also got bad guys. And boy, have we got a bad guy in this novel. Randall Korn. I mean, he's, he's about as nasty as you can get. I'm just wondering, in a sense, you know, there are other characters. You can't have a Randall Korn unless you've got a lot of people around them who support what they do. And those are the kind of yeah. um, the ones who either weak enough to follow line or they're the ones who um, just let it happen anyway. You know, one example in the novel is, is Sheriff Lomax, who's a much mm. more nuanced character. But in a sense, I got the feeling with, with Randall Korn, you were almost enjoying the idea of literally introducing evil and the devil to the book. And it helps with the atmosphere. Yeah. Is that sort of true? Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to give a, a, a literal and metaphorical sense of evil and corruption with right. him. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's based on real characters, mm. real people. Um, there is, I, I refer at the end of the at the end of the book to a um, a study done by the Fair Punishment Project um, because the death penalty in the United States is driven by personalities. Mm. And we know this. 
So last year, there were more federal executions than state executions. That's the first time that's happened in over 100 years. Yeah, and yeah. that's all because of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, uh, and it's the same with, with death penalty cases in the South. So, I mean, there are five prosecutors who were responsible for 440 death penalty convictions between yeah, them. Incredible, isn't it? Which is you know, close to 20% of the total death row population. And when they stopped being in office, the death penalty conviction rate plummeted. Mm. But these people were obsessed with the death penalty. Um, so it's it's something, and, and I, for me, I thought this is a power thing with these people. Mm. That's one of the things with it. But the other thing was, it reminded me of the uh, the idea of the 2%. This is a military um, theory. Oh, yes, right. Um, yeah. that, that only that there, there's a small number of people who join the military mm. because they want to kill somebody. Mm. And in previous wars, they're the people that kept everyone alive. You yeah, know, yeah. Because in, in earlier wars, in, in the latter half of the, or the earlier part of the last century, people would not fire at the enemy. Yeah. You know, and then military training changed. People weren't shooting at round targets in training anymore. They're shooting at people, uh, targets. Mm. They're trained. You're not killing someone. You're protecting the man next to you. All of that psychological conditioning is to get a soldier to aim a gun and fire it, where there are people who join up, busting to be able to kill someone. And I thought, well, you could join the military. The other option in America is to become a district attorney. Because you have lots of opportunity to kill people there. It's actually, literally a legal way to kill people, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's step back from that just a, a tiny bit. But go back to those issues uh, after this. But I just wanted to talk about research because research, I know, must be a massive part of your work. But I'm just wondering how you feel about how that actually feeds into the work then. Because it, it has to be lightly written, I suppose, in a sense, doesn't yeah. it? does. You know, I always do lots of research and uh, some of it's legal procedural and some of it's, you know, historical. Yeah. And I try, I leave nearly all of it out. I only give the reader right. enough so they understand what's at stake. So the drama has the proper platform. Yeah. Um, occasionally I'll come across things which are interesting and I will tell the reader about that, you know, mm. so that they can understand this as well. And you know, they'll learn something from it, but it's, yeah. um, I, I hit the, they're very carefully written because I hate reading in a bit where, you know, a, a, an author says, right, I've learned all about this thing. <laughs> and you're now, you're going to know it about it too. And you get three pages, you know, on the life cycle of a beetle or something like this. Yeah. Or something about steel um, and the history of steel uh, in a certain time yeah. or something yeah. like that. You get that I'm in Tolstoy, to actually. Part of the story. Tolstoy gives so, you massive and, sections on Freemasons and things like that, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's all there's all this stuff. So I'm trying to deal with it lightly, and so that it has an impact, mm. you know. So there are things like in the book about uh, if you're going to serve on a capital murder case, you have to be death qualified. Mm. You have to be prepared to say this person is guilty and should be executed. If you can't do that, you're not on the jury. Mm. So there's all the and I'm, not a lot of people know that. I don't think. So I wanted to introduce this again in a light way. People can understand, though, this is real. This really happens. That's unfair. Mm, yeah. But I'm not hitting anyone over the head with it. I'm just saying, no, here's what's happening. And let's move on with the story. Yeah. It's just that the accuracy matters, doesn't it? But not in terms of, as you said, making sure the reader gets every point of that. But it has to be there to back it up. You have to feel it. Still. It does. Yeah. And little details like that. 
I think makes the story more real as well and allows yeah. me to be perhaps more flamboyant with the plot. Yeah. Okay, let's look at the issues behind the novel then. This is one of the things I love about the, the novels. You know, it's not, you've got the courtroom drama, you've got a very exciting case that, that's gripping. It's, it's page-turning stuff. But I like the fact that you explore these social issues in it here. And I think three things in particular struck me about this novel, and, and they will everybody else too. But the first one is um, just a general point about the rush to judgment. Because when a terrible crime happens, it seems that people are very keen to want somebody to get punished. And the bizarre thing is that that's undirected and it doesn't necessarily have to be the right person who gets punished, but there's some kind of gratification if somebody is punished. I mean, is that your view? Because you've obviously got a lot of experience as a real lawyer as well, of course. Uh, we've all seen that happen. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer for that. Mm. I mean, there was um, not so long ago, there was a, a, a woman murdered uh, in like a set of flats. And mm. one of the newspapers, I think, spoke to one of her neighbors and said, that's a strange looking wee man. Bet you he killed her, basically. Yeah. And he was arrested and everything. And, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. so we, that, that happens. I think that's human nature. Something awful happens. We want that person caught and dealt with quickly. And when you're in a political office uh, in America, which is also responsible for law and order, the yeah. sheriffs are elected, district attorneys are elected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have the luxury of saying, sorry, we can't find this person. Mm. You know, that's not going to look good in election day. They have to, to get someone and get it cleared up. Yeah. And, you know, you switch on the crime channel or whatever. You'll see countless documentaries of people who have just been, you know, crowbarred. Their own circumstances and stories are crowbarred into them being told you've you've done this and we're going mm, to yeah, we're yeah. going to put you on trial for this and extracting false confessions is you know that's happened you know Central Park Five they're all false confessions yes of course yeah they're extracted so it, this is something that happens every day so it's not unusual in that circumstance yeah yeah but it feeds into the the next issue which is one of the two really big themes of the book and th and that's the racism I mean Andy's charged with Skylar's murder um, and he's got the misfortune in this context, bracket, open brackets, you know, to be black. Um, and that gets him into this story. You've got this white supremacist story. You mentioned the pastor that feeds into it, and that feeds beautifully into the story. But um, because the victim is white and this is the South, there's a, there's a just, it, I mean, he, the man's almost hanged before he starts, or in this case, electrocuted. That, that's what it would lead to. Um, but everybody, as you said, in the whole town is against him. I'm just wondering, was, was this your way of exploring the Black Lives Matter um, story in America, you know, and, and making a contribution in a sense to that? It was uh, in a way, and I have to be very careful here uh, because I have some experience of um, doing race discrimination cases right. at a very high level in, in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. but I'll never understand what it's like to suffer race discrimination. Yeah. That's not something I'll ever know. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something I've researched heavily and I've represented people who have and tried as much as I can to understand what they go through. So perhaps with this aspect, I maybe have some, some chance of injecting my own view on this uh, into this book. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, it's very conscious of the Black Lives Matter movement and how absolutely crucial that is for American society and and British society too. Yeah, yeah, us too. Yeah. So I am um, that, that's something I believe in very passionately. 
But at the same time, I'm a white Irishman writing about, you know, race difficulties in America. Mm. So for me, what I eventually worked out through writing the book was to try and expand it a bit more, to make it a wee bit more universal. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes through um, uh, Dennis Neumuller's, um prose poem, which is a reference specifically in the book. And it, it's a poem about, well, it's it's on the Holocaust memorials. Yes, and yes. he says, well, when they came for the, the socialists, I didn't yes. speak out because I'm not a socialist. When they came for the trade unions, I didn't speak out because I'm not a trade unionist, and so on and so on. Mm. And then the, the poem finishes, when they came for me, no, no one was left to speak for me. And I think that's a, that's a universal question for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, became the focus. Obviously, there is, there's a, a lot of, of difficult uh, racism that goes on in this book, which mm-hmm. had to be explored. But I wanted to broaden it out a wee bit uh, so this becomes a question for everyone. When there is injustice, at what point do you say, no, that's, that's not right, and you stand up? Because that's a question for all of us uh, at some point. But I was I put a lot of work in it, and I've been you know I've been very lucky. You know, a friend of mine, a fantastic gifted writer, Sean Cosby, read the book for me. Oh, right, quite early, and mm. said you're you know you're spot on there, and uh, and even gave me a, was good enough to give me a quote for the book. And and Sean is one of the, the I would say one of the most talented African American crime writers working today. So that was a, you know a very important to me. I have to say on a personal level. Not only because of Sean's talent as well, but because um, of his experience and because he's a friend. Yeah, absolutely. I've just read Razor Blade Tears, actually. It's a phenomenal novel, isn't it? No, he's amazing. That guy's going to be the next Elmore Leonard. Well, yeah. I mean, he's this good now. What's he going to be like in 10 years? No, that's absolutely true. You bleed with those books. They're that good, yeah. Yeah. The other issue, then, is, is capital punishment. Um, and I, one thing that struck me was that over the last few years, it was happening actually that the polls were starting to turn in America more towards people not being in favor of capital punishment to the mm-hmm. point where I think last year we got a poll that actually said that more than 50% of the population didn't believe in capital punishment. Yes. Um, and so that was a very positive thing, you know, a, a sort of change around because it seems that um, you've got all sorts of issues that capital punishment. Um, in fact, let's not hear my view. What do you think about capital punishment and why that's a central point of the book? For me, it it never really made sense. And I think all of the arguments that were previously made for it Mm. um, have all fallen apart now and proved to be demonstrably uh, false. So the the big argument was an economic argument. But we know that doesn't work. It's much cheaper to keep someone in jail for 50 years than it is to have a capital murder trial and then execute them. We, we, because we've seen the figures, so that that argument doesn't work. Mm. Uh, the deterrent argument is a strange one. There's no evidence to say that it is a deterrent. No, that just there's that evidence doesn't stack up. Um, what it what that argument really is is well, look, we're what we're going to do is we're going to say you can't do this thing, and if you do this thing, we're going to kill you. Mm. To send a message to the rest of the state that you shouldn't do this thing. That's not an argument for capital punishment. That's no, an argument for human sacrifice. Mm. But you can't put, I'm in favor of human sacrifice on a bumper sticker in the back of your car. Yeah. You know, 
uh, and the third argument is, oh, it's retribution. It's an eye for an eye. Mm. That's not really a good argument for um, for killing someone, for the yeah. state taking someone's life. That's that just doesn't work for me. So I, I and we haven't even discussed the fact that you know almost as many people are, are get off death row because they're declared innocent or their trial mm. is ruled unsafe as were executed last year. You know, it's an know, and that system really anyway. You shouldn't even be having this discussion. But it, for me, it's a, it was always a big thing I was very passionate about and being anti-death penalty. So I got to flex some of my muscles with this book. Yeah. I mean, the other issue is, of course, it, it's um, when it's instituted, it's instituted so disproportionately too, isn't it? It is. You know, the, the number of black people who actually wind up on death row and who wind up being executed is way out of kilter for the, the level of black people in the population. It is, a, it is definitely a hangover from slavery. Mm. It's all those Confederate states that still hang on to it. And really, in a modern democracy, it should be, it should be outlawed completely. Yeah, I agree with you there. I just wonder, was there a little bit of an homage here to um, Clarence Darrow? You know, I don't know why, but for me, when I was reading about this guy, uh, Corn, almost seemed as if he was the antithesis of everything that Darrow stood for, in a sense, when it came to these kind of capital cases. I mean, tell well, us a little bit about Darrow. Darrow's a big influence of mine. Um, right. He he was uh, he was he started off as a as a trade union lawyer mm. representing railroad workers. And then one of the guys who worked for him was caught with a bag full of money trying to go into a jury room. And they were never able to tie that money to Darrow. But the mm. bar said, him, you can't do this sort of work anymore. But he said, OK, and he's, I'll do death penalty cases. And Darrow historians differ, but they think he did over 100. Mm. And he lost a handful. And he was, again, mostly representing you know, African-Americans. Uh, yeah, uh, facing the death penalty in front of an all-white jury, mm. which is just in the deep south, which is an incredible thing. It is, yeah. But of course, Darrow cheated um, just as much as Eddie. You know the cigar story? Right. Tell it, please. Okay, so one of the Darrow's tricks uh, was when the prosecution were calling their star witness that day, uh, Darrow would put on a beautiful white suit. He normally dressed yeah, in black. Right. That day white linen suit, and he smoked these big, almost foot-long Cuban cigars. And he would put a lady's hat pin through the center of the cigar, <laughs> go into court, and then light a cigar, the witness is called. And he never had any papers in front of him on his desk. He never wrote anything down. It was all in his head. Um, and he had a big uh, ashtray, huge, like the size of a dinner plate, mm. in front of a big crystal ashtray. And he sat there and he smoked a cigar. And as the evidence got more damning, the ash in his cigar got longer and longer. And, of course, the hot hat pin acted like a central girder and kept the ash there. It wasn't yeah, going right. to fall anywhere. <laughs> he sat with the cigar precariously balanced over his suit with an impossibly long column of ash. And the jurors who noticed this aren't paying attention to the witness at all. They're all nudging each other going, look, that's going to fall on his suit. Why doesn't he tip that ash in that ashtray? So he was, he was mesmerizing and completely distracting the jury from what they were supposed to be listening to, very subtly. To me, that's just, that's sheer brilliance. And of course, he was doing it for the right reason. Yeah, exactly. See, that, that does, I, kinda, I suppose that's one of the reasons why it struck me, because it is going back to Eddie, 
and and this thing we were talking about earlier about doing wrong for the right reasons in a sense absolutely getting a distraction like that um i mean i wonder because you also mentioned about the federal executions and the federal executions have gone well we had the first one didn't we in 1920 uh, sorry in 2020 which is the <laughs> first one for a number of years and of course donald trump was behind that um we know racism is getting worse in the South because of Donald Trump. I'm just wondering, do you think the capital crime issue would be getting worse as well in that context? I mean, he's given you license know, to I, an awful lot of possibly, I, mean, I mean, Biden has now stopped all federal executions. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a great thing. And I'm hoping, you know, there will be something or some effort made now in the South to look at capital punishment seriously mm. uh, and to reevaluate it. Properly, um, it's a very strange thing. Capital punishment at the moment. Uh, there are various legal mechanisms uh, at work to try and put a stop to it. For example, mm. there's in certain states there's no more any um, lethal injection. Yeah, there was right. a very bad botched lethal injection, and someone suffered incredibly badly. And that's why now a lot of inmates opt for the electric chair instead of mm. lethal injection. Plus, there were problems getting the drugs from drug companies etc yeah so i hope it it stops in terms of donald trump making it worse i'm not sure he did make it worse right i think that was all there anyway mm. and what donald trump did was i think in some ways he gave people permission to I voice what, what they were perhaps already thinking mm. uh, I mean, he didn't help it he may have made it worse. No, I, I see what you mean, though. It's a bit like social media. You know, we, we see women getting attacked on social media and people getting attacked for the most crazy things. Um, yes. And it just seems that there's a license all of a sudden for these people to get on social media and do their thing. Whereas exactly. in the past, they didn't have the access to that because they'd have had to write a letter or something. Uh, yeah, That's true. That's and a lie nothing. will spread around the world before the truth is put its yeah. shoes yeah. on. Sad but true. Um, just to lighten up a little bit, I think. Um, how about TV? Because uh, are we going to have an Eddie Flynn TV series? I don't know if we are. Right. Um, we might do. We might do. Uh, there's no, there's nothing uh, in active development at the moment. Right. Um, but you never know. Uh, if we've got the right company and the right people behind it, perhaps. Um, you know, I mean, I'm become ever more precious of Eddie Flynn. Mm, right. So yeah, yeah. Uh, if we had, if, if, if circumstances collided or somebody threw me a, you know, a suitcase full of money, right. <laughs> if, if you know, one of those things happened, we might well have an Eddie Flynn series. <laughs> well, we'll look out for developments on that in the future. What's next then? Next, I don't know. Um, I have a standalone, which I right. have not... I don't know what's going to happen with that yet. And I'm, I'm working on another Eddie Flynn now. So wh whether it'll be a standalone or the Eddie Flynn, I don't know. Um, both, I think, are, are working out pretty well in right. terms of I'm happy with both of them. Um, ultimately, I would love to do two books a year. Right. Ultimately, my goal would be an Eddie Flynn every year as well as something else. Oh, okay. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I'm ahead of myself enough. I think it could happen. So I think fingers crossed, that's my long-term plan. And then people will be sick of me and not buy any books at all. <laughs> no, I tell you what they will be, though. They'll be very glad to hear that. Because if you tell people there's a standalone, it doesn't mean they're not looking forward to the standalone. 
but the thought that you might have to wait two years for an Eddie Flynn would be uh, pretty upsetting, I think, for a lot yes, of readers. <laughs> exactly. And I don't want to do that. No, absolutely not. How about a recommendation? Somebody you've read recently? I know we've talked about a few books through the... Uh, I mean, how much time do you get for reading? Not as much time as I used to, really. Mm. Um, and it's been difficult to read, I yeah. think, during, during COVID. Um, uh, I would, I'll tell you what, I'm going to recommend uh, two writers, and not necessarily okay. their, their, their books. One of them, I, I'm still reading their latest. The other one, I haven't got to it yet. But I'm going to recommend uh, Vasim Khan and Abhir Mukherjee. Ah, right. And there are two fabulous writers. Mm, yeah. I'm reading Vasim's uh, latest one at the moment, uh, which is marvelous. He's he's an incredible gift, Vasim, in that you're being told the story as if you're hearing it from a dear friend. Yes. He's a, there's a beautiful warmth to the mm. way he writes, which I think is a very special gift. And of course, you know, it's about lost manuscript. And there's lots of exciting things going on and great characters. But the way it's told is fabulous. And of Abir Mukherjee's latest one um, to look at uh, in his um, Wyndham and Banerjee series. Yes, right. So, uh, and Abir's a fantastic writer. Um, but, but you can see the influence in a lot of, of classic crime in Vasima's extended metaphors, and he's a brilliant turn of phrase. Mm. But he's a real page-turner, turning filler. And again, wonderful locations. Um, yes. So, yeah, those are two writers I recommend. Go and get all of their books. Uh, that's Vasim Kam and, and Abir Mukherjee. I totally agree. I'll put a note actually on the uh, on the sleeves with this, and uh, people can have a look at that just to be sure. Because uh, I think one of the things is it's really nice when somebody can have a look at history in the way they yes. do, you know, Indian history and so on. And you're looking at it, and you're getting that fresh perspective, or it's just making you think about something in a slightly different way. Yeah. Marvelous writers. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, that's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. Not at all. It's a total pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul. A big thank you to Steve for a fascinating chat about uh, The Devil's Advocate and Eddie Flynn and plenty of other topics too. And thank you very much for listening. I'll be back very shortly with another episode and another interview, but for now, bye.